0: Hi everybody, welcome to Journey of Faith. My name is Jason Cusick, I'm the lead pastor here, and wanna say hi to everybody at our Torrance campus right now, as well as uh, if you weren't able to make it in person, you're watching us online, thanks for joining us. We're in week four of our five-week series called Get Ready, and the idea behind this is that uh, 2,000 years ago, after Jesus finished his ministry on earth, he left, but before he left, he said, "I'm going to be coming back one day." and his return was going to kind of wrap up history and bring new relationship with God and his people. Um, he didn't say when he was going to come back, but he said, "You'll know it's coming when you see things like wars and catastrophes and confusing religious teaching. Well, we have all those today, so the question is is, is are we living in the end times? Is Jesus?" Coming back soon, and if so, what should we do to be ready? And so, to answer that question, we're looking at these two books in the New Testament: First and Second Thessalonians. They were written by Paul, one of Christianity's first missionaries, and they were written to people living in a, a, a Greek town called Thessalonica in the first century. And the people in this town had a lot of questions about. Jesus' promised return and what they should expect. And they had a lot of kind of end times anxiety. And so Paul gives them some really good advice about how to live. And so each week we've been going through that. Um, If you missed any of these messages, you you can check them out on our website, on our app, or on our YouTube channel. Uh, Next week we're wrapping up this series. Pastor Jill's going to finish our series by looking at the end of the letter of 1 Thessalonians. And today we're gonna be talking about this topic, hope. When's the last time you had an experience where you were with somebody and one of you had hope and the other one didn't? Um, I had an experience a couple of years ago. My wife and I had the opportunity to go over to England to do some ministry training. And while we were there, we uh, did some touristy things. And one of the places we went, was the uh, Churchill War Rooms. And what this is, is it's a museum dedicated to the life and work of uh, Winston Churchill, who was the, the prime minister of Great Britain during World War II, and kind of rallied troops to fight against Nazi Germany. And, and this museum is located in the underground bunkers where Churchill kind of did his work during the war. And it was fascinating to give you like a little uh, audio guide that you walk around and you can kind of listen to stuff. And we went through the whole war rooms. And then at the end, there's this hallway. And I was at the beginning of the hallway Listening to what was really the darkest hours of the war. It was like when things were at their worst, all is lost, and I'm like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? And I was all stressed out, and they were explaining all the details. And I look over, my wife is at the end of the hall, at the end of the war. So you know, we win, and, and Hitler's dead. Spoiler, that's what happened at the end of World War Two. <laughs> But she's at the end of the hall, and she's like, yeah, all right, and she's looking for somebody to high-five. And I'm over here going, oh, my gosh, I'm kind of in the midst of it. And we get a look at each other, and it was this funny kind of moment, and we talked about it, and afterwards, I was like, let's take a picture and recreate that. That's where it was like, I was like, oh, no, what's going to happen? And she's like, this is great. It was like emoticons really popping up, and we were having these different feelings. Sometimes... we're in a situation where one of us is like, oh no, what's going to happen? And the other person is like, hey, this is actually great. Come on this way. And that's what we're gonna talk about today. That's what the, the First Thessalonians chapter four that we're gonna look at today is talking about, is that balance between, oh, I'm wrestling with something right now that I'm worried or I'm anxious or I'm grieving about, and yet, God is inviting us to have hope for the future. Here's our main idea for today. We can be encouraged by the return of Jesus. The people living in Thessalonica, the Christians in the first century, they believed that Jesus was going to come back. And when things got tough, they were being persecuted and killed for their faith. There was starvation. There was government oppression. There was disease. They were actually not giving in to cynicism and negativity and hostility. They had hope. And let me clarify that word a little bit because we use the word hope differently than the Bible uses the word hope. Hope does not equal wish. That's kind of how we, oh, I hope this will happen. In the Bible, the word hope means a positive expectation. The Christians living in the first century, in Thessalonica in particular, they had the hope of Jesus' return. A positive expectation that Jesus would do what he promised. And here's what he promised. He said, don't let your hearts be troubled trust in God, trust also in me. There's more than enough room in my father's home. When everything is ready, I will come back and get you. And so the Christians living in that time were like, oh, he's going to prepare eternity for us, and then he's going to physically come back to the world and get us. But they had a lot of questions about that, like we do. Like, when is that going to happen? What is that going to look like? What happens at different times? And so Paul says to the people living there, he says, my dear brothers and sisters, let us let me clarify some things about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and how we will be gathered to meet him. And he gives us a good disclaimer, too. He says, don't be so easily shaken or alarmed by those who say that the day of the Lord has already begun like, don't believe them. Even if they claim to have a spiritual vision or a revelation or a letter supposedly from us, he's like, look, things are confused. People are going to say, oh, I, I got it. Jesus already showed up or he's coming tomorrow or something's going. I got a vision. I got a new book of the Bible I just wrote. He was like, don't, don't get rattled. Don't get shaken. Relax. And he says, let me give you some clarity about the questions you have. Now, the people living in Thessalonica had one specific question that they were wrestling with. They said, if Jesus is going to come back physically to the world and get us who are alive, what happens to the people that died? I mean, are they going to miss the second coming of Jesus? That was a question they were wrestling with. So Paul addresses that specific question. Here's what he says. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so that you will not grieve like people who have no hope. He says, for since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. So what's he saying here? He's saying there's something about Jesus. When Jesus died, he went to go be with the Father in heaven, and then three days later, his body and spirit were kind of renewed and changed, and he rose from the dead... Paul's saying something similar is going to happen with people who have died already. That when Jesus returns, he will come back with their spirits and they too will rise from the dead and be changed for eternity. The idea he's talking about is this idea, resurrection, that God is, isn't that, that when we die, we don't just go to heaven, and then the bodies are done, and then that's it, and then we don't deal with them anymore, and now we just kind of are ethereal, disembodied spirits with God. There, there is this idea that when we die, it's absent from our body, we're present with God, but when Jesus returns, he's going to bring bodies and spirits back together again, just like he was resurrected. The point Paul is trying to make to the Thessalonians is really captured in this sentence that he gives. He says, you will not grieve like people who have no hope. What Paul is saying is we can be encouraged by the return of Jesus because death is not the end. There is always hope. And that's The first way we can be encouraged by the return of Jesus is that with Jesus, we can find hope in our grief. No matter what you're going through, no matter what you're struggling with, no matter what kind of loss you've experienced, maybe you're going through something with your job or with your school or with your friendships or your finances or your health, no matter what the situation, no matter how dark the time, Jesus is like, "Hey, come on down the hall a little bit further, because there's good news down here." Jesus is inviting us to not be in denial of grief, because some of us have that toxic positivity where it's like, "I will never be sad. I will always be confident." That's that's not healthy. But the opposite isn't healthy either. Oh my gosh, I'm depressed. I'm just feeling all this stuff and I have no hope. Somehow there's this relationship between it's okay to be sad and to grieve and experience loss and I have hope. Here's an action step for you. This week, find one way to infuse hope into your anxiety, your stress, your grief, your sadness. When you feel that loss, feel it. Invite God into that and then be reminded that that is not the end of the story. That there is life after loss. That there is life after that grief. The Christians in the first century went through incredible times of suffering and persecution and death and illness. And they had a hope that Jesus would come back. And that kept them forward looking. And it didn't keep them forward looking like, all right, Jesus, come back anytime. You know, like I'm going through it. I want you to come back today. No, Jill, Jill will talk about this next week. It kept them focused on their mission. They were like, Jesus is going to come back one day. Let's start a hospital. Jesus is going to come back today. Let's go rescue some orphans. Jesus is coming back someday. Let's end slavery right now. It kept them focused on mission. And I'll tell you, I've been working on that just even the last few years. I'm one of those people, maybe some of you can relate, that when I feel sadness, and loss, I can kind of stick in there longer than I should. There was a song out years ago, and one of the lines was, we can be addicted to a certain kind of sadness. Um, And I really related to that lyric. Yeah, there's something familiar, and I think for some of us, personality, upbringing, DNA. But I've been working really hard to, to infuse my sadness and my anxiety with hope, to remind myself of the life that Jesus has and what's possible. What would that look like for you, maybe even this week? Paul is encouraging them to find the hope in their grief because they're wrestling with this idea of when Jesus returns, what happens to my loved ones? And then he takes it a step further. Let's continue reading because there's one other source of encouragement that he wants to give here. He says, We tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living, when the Lord returns, will not meet him ahead of those who have died. I'll talk about that in a moment. He says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, first, the believers who have died will rise from their graves, that resurrection. Then, together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and then we will be with the Lord forever. He says, so encourage each other with these words. So what's he talking about? When Paul is describing the return of Jesus, he uses a very particular Greek word, which we think was his favorite word for talking about the return of Jesus. Here's what it is, it's parousia. So you'll see this if you read books or listen to things about the coming of Jesus. Parousia literally means an arrival or presence, and in Paul's day, it was a military term, and here's what it meant. When the king would come back from battle, and was returning home, the king would come back into town, and the townspeople would come out of town to meet the king, and then they would escort the king to the final destination. This is what Paul's describing. Jesus will come, the dead who have died as followers of Jesus, and those who are alive will come and meet Jesus, the king, and then will come to earth for a new heavens and a new earth. That's what he's kind of describing here. Now, how will that happen? When will that happen? How does that tie in to other things the Bible teaches about the end of the world? Let me give you three views about the timing of Jesus' return related to other things in Bible prophecy. Okay, get ready, strap in. I'm gonna have some diagrams here, okay? Okay. Let's imagine human history as this line, and Jesus comes to the earth and dies on the cross for our sins. The first view says, after Jesus has died on the cross and risen again, he has become king. And now Jesus begins to reign for what the book of Revelation calls the millennium, a thousand years. Either literally, or symbolically. And during this time, the world gets better and better. As we're following Jesus and the world is changing, the world gets better. And at the end of this time, literal or symbolic, there is a period of suffering and conflict, but that is ended because Jesus returns, and we who are dead and alive at the time meet him, and then there is a final judgment and the new heavens, and the new earth. That's a view called amillennialism, which means either no millennium, meaning this could be more symbolic, it's not literally a thousand years, or postmillennialism. And what that means is Jesus arrives after his reign as king during the millennium. Here's a second view. This is the timeline of human history. Jesus dies on the cross for our sins. And rather than him being crowned as king and the world getting better, Jesus is not crowned as king. In fact, the world gets worse and worse. But after an intense time of suffering, Jesus returns. Those that are dead in Jesus and living meet him, and then he is crowned king. And he rules on earth for a thousand years Followed by the final judgment and a new heaven and a new earth. This is called pre millennialism, in that Jesus arrives, returns back to earth before the millennium. You can see the difference because, in the first view, Jesus is king right now and things will get better and better. In the other view, Jesus is not king right now and things are going to get worse and worse. You can see how people would interpret the world differently. Some people would say, well, actually, look at the world as it is today compared to 2,000 years ago. It's a lot better. Other people would be like, compared to 2,000 years ago, it's a lot worse, right? Here's a third view, and this is a bit of a minority view within the history of Christianity, and that is some Christians believe that what Paul is describing here as Jesus coming back and the people meeting him is not. His second coming, but is instead a secret rapture. And that is Jesus arriving and snatching his followers out of a suffering world. And so in this, the timeline of human history, Jesus dies on the cross for our sins. There's a period of suffering. And then according to some other Bible prophecies, there's a specific seven-year timeline of prophecy And then at some point, Jesus arrives to take his people out, either at the beginning or at the middle or at the end. And then after that, Jesus arrives to the world as Messiah, is crowned king, reigns for a thousand years. There's a judgment, and then a new heaven and new earth. Now, some of you right now, you're kind of like, all right, let's get into each one And let's talk about which one is right. And others of you, you're like, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh? What? You're like, I don't even know what you just said. I'm, I'm so confused right now. Let me tell you that there is not universal agreement among Christians about the timing of Jesus related to end times events that the Bible talks about. There are good, solid, biblical, intelligent Christians that have different views on this topic, which means the encouragement that Paul is trying to give us here in Thessalonians is not, here's exactly how it will go down related to other areas. What Paul is trying to do is give us this encouragement. We can focus on what we can know about the end times. Again, there's a lot of different views, a lot of different takes on the end times and on the arrival of Jesus. But out of the three views I shared with you there, here's what they all have in common. Jesus will return as promised. We should be ready to endure hardship. Whether the world is getting better or the world is getting worse, all of the views hold that right before Jesus arrives, things will get worse. Number three, we're on a mission of goodness. We're not called to just wait. We are called to feed the poor, help the hurting, take care of the sick, work for justice. We're on mission here. We have a lot to do as we get ready for Jesus's arrival. And then fourth, Jesus, the King, will bring justice to the world. We need to fight for justice and fight injustice, but the ultimate victory will come as Jesus himself shows up to make the things right that only he can make right. Now, that begs the question, so when does all this stuff happen? When, when is it going to take place? Well, that's how Paul finishes this section. He says, for you know quite well that the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly, like a thief in the night. He said, how do we know? Are we going to know? No. It's going to be like a thief in the night. And it's going to catch everybody by surprise except us. Because look what he says afterwards. You won't be surprised when the day of the Lord comes like a thief. For your children of the light and children of the day. We don't belong to the darkness and the night. So be on your guard not asleep like the others. Stay alert and be clear-headed. He literally uses the word sober because then he uses a metaphor. He says night is the time when people sleep and drinkers get drunk. He says, let us live in the light and be clear-headed, protected by the armor of faith and love, and wearing as our helmet the confidence, another word for hope, of salvation. We have the hope of salvation. So we live clear-headed. We live thoughtful. We live soberly. We're children of light. We will not be surprised when Jesus shows up because he said he was coming back. There were only other people, Jesus shows up, they'd be like, I had no idea this was coming. Now, some of you might be like, you might be like that this morning. I didn't know Jesus said he was going to come back. Now you do. It will be unexpected, but not surprising, because Jesus said he was going to do that. But that begs the question, are we ready? And I think all of us on some level, if we look deep within our hearts, we might be like, no, (laughs) but like, Jesus, can you give me a little bit more time on, on this area, in this area of my life? Here's our action step for today. Take one new step to get ready for Jesus' return. What would that look like for you? Maybe there's a relationship you need to reconcile. Maybe there's somebody you need to apologize to. Maybe there's an area of your life where you're like, I really need to turn this thing around. I don't want Jesus showing up with this thing going on in my life. What is it for you that if Jesus were coming back tonight, you would be like, you know what? I need to kind of clean this up. I need to deal with this. I need to reorder my life. What would it look like for you to get ready? And for some of you, you might be the place where I was at when I was 19 years old. When I learned that Jesus was coming back, I was like, I don't even know Jesus. Like, I want to to be ready to meet Jesus. This person who who died for my sins. And if you are one of those people who maybe you have never actually said yes to God's love and forgiveness in your life through Jesus, today's your day. Let me put up this QR code. This is a very simple way to connect with us. If you have never said yes to Jesus, I want to invite you to do that today. It's as simple as saying, God, you, you made me you love me, but I'm imperfect, I'm flawed, I'm what Jesus called a sinner. That means I have a way of doing things my own way. God, forgive me because of what Jesus did, forgive me, give me a new life, help me to be your follower that when you arrive that I'll be one of those people that comes out and greets you. we have an opportunity, every one of us, to get ready. So here's how we're going to close our service today, because I want to give us some space to do that. I'm going to ask our musicians to come out uh, here and at, at, at Torrance, and I'm going to pray, and then we're going to just have a, a, a closing a, 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 about a minute or two for just reflection. We'll just play some music, and this is your opportunity to go, yeah, I need to... I need to get this thing done. Some of you know, "Ah, I need to change this. Hey, I need to go deal with this situation. There might be some of you like, I don't know. But in that moment or two, you can say, God, you speak to me. You let me know how I need to get ready. And for those of you who have never said yes to Jesus, this would be a great time to do that. In this quiet, reflective moment, you can say, Jesus, come into my life. I'm making a decision to follow you today. Now, before I pray, let me close this message the way I started. I started talking about World War II and how the war ended and how Churchill was doing that stuff. While we were in the war rooms, there was a section about some of the marketing that Great Britain did to prepare people for the war. So they did this whole marketing campaign where they were like, Hey, you know what? There's going to be air raids. There's going to be bombs. Your city, our cities are going to get attacked. We're going to have the hardest challenges of our life. The future is coming, and it's going to be dark. So they created these posters to prepare people. And here's what the poster said: "Keep calm and carry on." Very British. You know? And you've seen these around, because now people change the second part to other things. But this is what they were saying. You know, tough times are coming. The end is coming. The darkest hours are coming. Just like Paul's saying. I think this is the message that Paul is saying here in 1 Thessalonians 4. Don't be easily shaken. Don't get disturbed. When people start talking about the end of the world, and they start panicking, and they start getting freaked out, and they got all this anxiety... Let me clarify some things. Keep calm. And we've got some work to do. Let's do the work that we need to do and prepare and get ready for Jesus' arrival. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to move into that reflection time, and then we'll close our service singing together. Gracious God, thank you. You said you are coming back to get us. but you've told us not to get anxious or easily shaken by the stuff that we're hearing around the world. And God, we're, we're living in a time right now where everybody is getting us upset and everybody's using fear to get us really disturbed about the end of the world. Help us to live as children of the light and of the day. Help us to be sober-minded, clear-headed. We don't know when things will take a turn, but we won't be surprised and help us to do what we need to do to carry on